0: And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast.
1: A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they
0: trade in is not wheat, they trade in famine. A little
2: dose of revolutionary optimism.
3: I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations.
4: The Union forever defending our rights. Down with the black if
5: you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program
6: Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays 3CR,
7: 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au
4: Solidarity forever!
2: Good morning everyone Hope you're feeling okay. I know the virus stay-at-home is getting pretty tiresome, but it has certainly given people the opportunity to rethink possible futures. I thought today we might start off with how it is for people who have lost their secure job overnight and now find themselves plunged into insecurity financially and without a stable home then move on to a more general discussion around more secure work and what that might look like if we invested in social capital and thought about what are essential and important for the well-being of the community. That's sorted. We will get a dose of satire with Kevin Healy's assessment of the week as we fall into another Anzac stupor. And we'll finish off with a 2000 person-strong Zoom rally to save the Tarkine from business vandalism.
8: I am not in love, but I'm open to persuasion,
9: When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Arma trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR,
7: the only alternative.
2: Trevor Hendley was gainfully employed at a print shop four weeks ago, but like every other person, depending on the weekly pay packet, all that evaporated with the coronavirus pandemic. I caught up with Trevor to see if the federal government's announcements were panning out in the real world. Can you tell me a little bit about your situation and and, and when you stopped working? and?
5: Okay, I think it was time is difficult these days to keep on top of things. Yeah, it is. From, I agree. It was four. Okay, the weekend they made the announcement there were to be no more gatherings of 500 people.
2: Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. I understand. So that's about a month
5: ago. Yeah. So we went back to work on the Monday and work was in dire straits from that because we were a printing company, with um, which I'd been out for four to five years. And most of our clients were conventions, conferences, Four Seasons Hotel, all that kind of stuff. So we just lost contracts out to October at least. And so there was talk about, you know, putting people on reduced hours or whatever. And because I recently was given my approval to teach in New South Wales public schools, I said, hey, look, I'll go out and put some CVs. And if I get work, I can take it as unpaid leave. And as I was doing that, I got a phone call saying your employment's been suspended because there was just no work. Um, but that was fine. I got four days of schooling at three different schools, but then school shot. So I had... Zero employment after that, but applied for job seeker, which has been granted, but only got that $750 bonus thing today, this morning that came through. Um, and beyond that, you know, it's only $488 I'm getting every fortnight. So all these things they've announced, like this, sup- the supplement doesn't start until April 27th to access your super. I've been granted approval, but you couldn't even apply for that until April 20th. And from what I understand, the JobKeeper doesn't start back paying employers until May the 1st. I've got a friend here who he works and oh, well, his dad owns a tourism company. So they've lost 100% of their income. They'd love to keep paying their employees. But back paying people from May the 1st when they need to pay people from March and April, his company's a tourism company. They've lost 100% of their income. They can't pay anyone and wait to be refunded. You were Sorry. saying
2: that you that you uh, got a... You've got nowhere to live now.
5: So, yeah. So I was living with a friend. The lease ran out during this period. And as I had no idea when I'm going to be working again or anything like that, I'm on a mattress on my sister's floor at the moment. Um, That's been going, I'm in the second week of doing that. I have now found a place to move in until Monday, but I couldn't even look for places until I even knew that I could access the super so. I mean, it's not ideal. My sister's working from home because people can't go out. As I said, her flatmate, um, he can't go to work because there's no tour groups to drive around. So it's three of us sitting in a lounge room together 24-7 and it's gone reasonably well, a few arguments. Backgammon's getting a bit heated, but it's obviously not ideal. And yeah, all the support they've announced, is just not arriving.
2: The um, business about announcing things and then taking such a long time to get through, What's your thoughts on that? And also, it being going through the employers instead of actually directly to the employee. What do you think about that?
5: Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I don't think that's ideal, and it doesn't cover a lot. So, my boss actually spoke and said they'd consider putting me on JobKeeper if I wanted. But considering I'm not going to keep that job anyway, I'm going back to uh, teaching as soon as schools reopen, it just wasn't worthwhile because they're taxing you off that too, is the big thing. So where they're saying they're giving you fifteen hundred, they're actually giving you thirteen hundred. I'd have to go into work where there's no work to do, i are just got to paint walls and stuff for a job that I'm not going to keep or, you know, get the eleven fifty. So I'm just taking the eleven fifty and focusing on university studies, waiting for schools to reopen. But then I think yesterday there was an announcement they've actually extended the period for um, well, the mutual obligations, but only out to May twenty second. So I mean people can't go to work because the government thought Valid health reasons to shut the economy down, but then they're making you apply for four jobs a month. Right. As soon as schools reopen, I will work, I want to work. But it's, I mean, these mutual obligations are ridiculous and demonizing in the best of times. I mean, now they're just an absolute joke. <laughs> again, it's all great to make announcements, and most of them are actually, you know, they're not 100% bad. They're actually pretty good. But when the money's not getting to anyone, again, four weeks, I'm about Already fifteen hundred, or so, in debt to friends and family because there's just no other way to survive. I mean, like a lot of people, I was in full-time employment at the same place for five years until a month ago, and you know, the government obviously knew they were doing this. My mum lives in Canada. Everyone there has gotten a, everyone on unemployment got a two thousand dollars stimulus. they they've raised that already. So I don't understand what the technical thing is unless it's because they've deliberately starved Centrelink for so many years that it just wasn't able to do it. But yeah, other countries seem to be able to step in and provide things with the haste that's required in a situation like this.
2: And as a worker, when this does finish, you're going to actually be in debt, aren't you?
5: Yeah, well, I've already lost 10,000 out of my super now. Um, I mean, a lot of that's just going to pay other people's debt. And to actually, you know, just pay rent and have a place to live. I'm behind on my phone bill. Luckily, Telstra doesn't seem to be cutting people off. But yeah, it's a massive hit. Well, I just want to stress again about the mutual obligations. The fact that they want to talk about the people excluded, actually. All the casuals, like myself as a casual teacher now, even for only one week. All the casual teachers, temporary teachers, as well as, you know, the whole hospitality and arts industries that are really affected, people don't get contracts for longer than 12 months, they're all excluded. Foreign workers that we're happy to bring in to keep the country running and sometimes treat horrendously are also excluded and got told to go home, which that is a ridiculous statement by the Prime Minister, that one. People can't go home.
2: No, no, people can't go home. And the other thing about it is, is on another level, our employment and economic system, which they want to maintain, Actually, us, it, the weaknesses of the system for ordinary workers is really clear, isn't it, now that yeah. everyone's in this situation? Yeah.
5: The weaknesses of the economic system, the deliberate uh, downsizing of government and disbanding of the public service. We saw that with the cues of people having to ignore social distancing to line up outside Centrelink and not be able to get anything done. People not being able to go on the website, which Stuart Robert just gives a dismissive, my bad. They've deliberately made Centrelink as labyrinthine and Kafka-esque as possible, so they want a situation like this hits. It's really exposed how not fit for purpose it is, and it's left a lot of people like myself who live week to week or paycheck to paycheck. And you know, had no like without coronavirus, it's never going to lose my job. I was valued. My boss often told me I was the best guillotine operator in Sydney. Had a good relationship with my boss, but yeah, they've done this, and people are just left, yeah, at the mercy, waiting for announcements long ago made to finally come to fruition.
2: It makes you kind of wonder if, uh, when it all goes back into place, that workers should be a little bit more proactive in uh, having a different system.
5: Yeah, definitely we need to really keep an eye on what they're doing because we can see Morrison and Porter already lining up to talk about more flexibility, more deregulation, more company tax cuts. So doing what they've been doing before that hasn't been working for 30 years that has left people in this exposed state and they're going to double or triple down on that. So workers really need to get together and fight this 100%. We need to look at what's what kind of society we want, how to make it happen, have a firm plan, and unite and make it happen.
2: I I heard a thing that someone said the other day, which I thought was really interesting about measuring how we measure success and how we measure what we want in society. And this is a good time to look at not just the economic uh, indicators that they always talk about, but other measurements and that we should be getting government to include those measurements in it. What do you think?
5: 100%. 100%. So 100%. I think other countries have moved to do that. They have a happiness index or something alongside the GDP growth numbers. And we need to do that. We need to get rid of this neoliberal thing that the economy or the market are the be-all and end-all. We have an economy to serve people. The economy is us. We need to decide what kind of society we want, and then we create the economy to serve those needs, not serve, not use people as fodder to serve the economy. As Richard Dennis, the economist at the Australian Institute has often said, the markets aren't some omniscient or the market when people all say the market won't like it, the market this the market isn't some all powerful omniscient being. It's made up of rich people just buying and selling stocks. It's not in their own interests. It's not what should be dictating our lives. Thanks for talking to me. <laughs> no problem. Thank you.
9: Hi, this is Liz
2: Stringer, and you're listening to The Mighty 3CR on 855am and digital radio, 3cr.org.au. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. All week, I've been wondering about the possibility of some positive change to our system that could be happening because of the pandemic. But the signs are not particularly good. Things like the federal government seeing an opportunity to change industrial relations law to benefit bosses is not a good sign, so I thought... I'd catch up with uh, Dave Kerrin from Earthworker Cooperative in the Latrobe Valley first for an update on how the virus is affecting them and to have a broader conversation about cooperatives and how they might have things to offer people uh, in terms of secure work.
5: So
10: we face the same dilemma that we did uh, pre-COVID. We're, we're, we're in desperate need for... Uh, procurement into public housing uh every now and again we've been really successful in having that conversation with them but then it falls off the table and doesn't sort of uh doesn't go anywhere but um we're we're, we're at the stage where uh yeah we, we we we're we're saying to government look we don't want handouts we want work and um and the place to do that work is in is in public housing which is so desperate uh, desperately in need of overhaul and um, yeah, and it's a no-brainer because it's like cost-neutral for government and all that. But I think um, sometimes it's the uh, the bigger issues that can make more noise that, of course, get attract the government attention. So, at any rate, we're still pushing ahead on that front. Um, but Earth, Earthworker generally is pushing ahead uh, also with this uh, powering Victoria Cooperative Steering Committee. We uh, we set that up with uh, the four unions in construction. Um, State government representatives, uh, Australian Energy Foundation, Friends of the Earth. So we've got a broad cross-section of people uh, working together leading up towards a final report in May, probably more now with COVID like June. Um, And then we want to get the work started off the back of that final report in in a number of areas that are very, very exciting. So,
0: yeah.
2: COVID's really shown some of the uh, dire weaknesses in our economic system for ordinary people. Uh, yeah. Do you think that cooperatives are a way forward for people? Have you had more interest in that sort of methodology?
10: Uh, yes, we have. Um, we And and it was going on before COVID, but I think now uh, it's mainstreamed more, that conversation. Um You know, because everyone's looking at, well, for instance, how do you economy? um, uh, Well, the answer is you can't if you want capitalism to do it. Um, um, If you're going to demand the public sector do it, that is, government take things over, well, they're not going to own and they're not going to employ anymore. Um, So, but there is a social sector of the economy um, that can... uh, can do that work and can can generally be more responsive um, to real need rather than that sort of irrational side of the private capitalist market, which is totally profit-driven. I mean, an example, um, the largest industry in the world is the military, by far the largest industry in the world. Now, do, you know, it doesn't take much to work out that if, you know... If, like if you've got the largest industry in the world is the military what do you need more of well you need more war it's not you know um it's uh you need to create more munitions and missiles and ships and tanks and and then when you create them you've got to use them otherwise the inflationary pull on your economy will create a depression because it's your largest industry in the world so so uh you know for us to say well We want capitalism to invest in climate jobs and non-military things. Well, it can't. So if it's not capable of doing something, I think it's time we recognise that fact and look at, well, what is capable of doing it? So in Australia, we've got socialised capital. I mean, we're the fourth largest superannuation fund in the world. Um, We've got to create a pole of attraction. Invest in and, and 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 do the big infrastructure projects that the climate um, that the planet needs and that we need in terms of work. So, so getting that modelling, that cooperative modelling, set up was always the purpose, the role of Earthworker, and we wanted to f- to found it in the unions so that it was working people organised in the labour movement who were, you know, taking these steps to get these models in place. Um. And, you know, in, in in embarking on that course, we ran into, with hindsight now, it's 25 years now, uh, we ran into all of the problems that, with hindsight, we were going to run into, you know, like, um, you know, unions organised to fight the boss, to fight for democracy within the economy. Uh, the idea of setting up our own workplaces that we own and control is a very, it, it's not a common everyday sort of idea, that. And um, so it's taken a while to get the conversation out there to build some sort of critical mass towards that, you know, that big discussion. And, uh, you know, so look, we're doing it. This Powering Victoria Cooperative, very, very exciting. I mean, we're looking at housing, a uh, green housing stock for, for union families, especially the younger union unionists with families, um, uh, energy auditing and retrofitting the existing structures, um, and, yeah the rollout of a 1.4-megawatt battery storage system. Very, very exciting things, but those things in the hands of the people creating the new climate jobs. So there's hope.
2: Well, there's, a, got couple things, there's a couple of things in there, uh, Dave, that I'd like to talk about. One of them is... Uh, Uh, Something I find really interesting, and I know it sounds kind of naive because I was doing the panel for the MUA guys and uh, they're really up against it. And the COVID uh, thing has really proven this and have completely cut their workers out and won't negotiate even over something like a pandemic and how it's supposed to be working in the workplace for safety. And they just went completely yep. quiet because, it, I mean, it was quite clear because they're polite people. That it was quite clear to mm. me on listening back that they just thought I was crazy. Don't you realize that all our fight is with the fact that the bosses think that we're complete morons and that we've got no rights and no power. And, yep. and yep. The, the whole thing is uh, something that, uh the majority of Australians need to really grapple with and I think cooperatives really grapple give a solution that actually the power differential is that extreme.
0: Yeah, yeah.
10: That's that's exactly right and and you know that that um that older notion of of um class war and class struggle and that's what it was always about before it got stereotyped into, you know, sort of cold War um, stories um, it was always about the fact that uh, of exactly what you just outlined you know that simple fact that um, that the powerful obviously set up structures um, that are economic social political cultural um, that uh, you know defend and foster that power and uh, and we when we, whenever we set up Organisations that we want to become powerful, the social structure and culture. Well, we do the same, and that's that's what that's that's all they ever meant. Meant when when people, the forebears of the movement, all of the founders of the you know the, the historic left. That's what they were referring to when they referred to class, and and yet to hold a discussion in that light now, on radio anywhere else than 3CR, it's very very difficult because. You know that conversation. All of the concepts involved in that conversation have been so stereotyped, as to mean, as to as to imply that whenever you want to talk in the way you and I are talking now, that we don't actually mean what we say. We say something, but we've got an ulterior motive. We've got a some nasty totalitarian um, endpoint in mind. And look, I, I think one thing neoliberal capitalism has done, because it's driven everyone to believe in nothing. Um, in order to consume more, uh, that people are a bit cynical about those sort of, you know, Cold War notions. Now, I mean, you can see it raising its head again with China and COVID, can't you? Like, yeah. I
4: mean,
10: if, if we're not careful, they're going to have us in a bloody world war, um, you know, going on the way they are about, you know, that this is a Chinese virus and the Chinese Communist Party deliberately lo- loosened this onto the world. And so I guess my hope is that people won't tumble for that and that we really do need to start looking at. A peaceful set of arrangements across the globe, regardless of governments, um, uh, that that you know, whereby people's real needs can be met. Now, capitalism's not capable of doing it. Governments are walked away from it. Um, uh, that's why everyone's so surprised and shocked when you saw when we saw the policies brought in a, around COVID. I mean, you know, really good left wing measures policies <laughs> put into place overnight. overnight. So anyone who can tell you that revolutions can't happen is kidding themselves. It's the conditions that drive structural change, revolutionary change, and the conditions that COVID set up meant that, well, everyone had to admit that capitalism couldn't deal with this. So it had to go to, um, you know, uh, what historically people would regard as left-wing policy measures. So that gives me some hope that, you know, some of the things that we were told across the 20th century can't work. In other words, we were told command and control, for instance, in the economy can never work. Well, well we've, we're surviving COVID only because of it. <laughs> um, capitalism survived. You know, uh, translation of that command and control into the economy where we, the ordinary people, make the decisions about the plan, the economic plan, um, and I know that, you know... Um, I trust that people all around the world in countries like China and Cuba and Venezuela and elsewhere um, prefer that too. But when you're on a permanent war footing, you know, like in China's case, you're surrounded by, what is it now, I think close to 400 military bases all targeting, you know, Beijing and, you know, (laughs) major cities in China. It's a little hard to have those reform, have that sort of reform agenda. So, so the first step's got to be, it seems to me, in the world is that we, we have to have a sector of the economy that can actually respond to need and uh, not irrational profit drives, uh, such as militarism. Um, so, you know, and and there are a few basic things, like private sector can't run health. We've proved that now. So we've got to change that. You, you can't have a private sector in, in armaments. I mean, that's... Like the fact that it is the largest industry in the world is just insane. So we've got to take uh, armaments out of private hands because otherwise we're saying that it's all right that there is an incentive towards war. So there's a few basic things I think there is now with COVID a chance to actually have a conversation about. The the, the thing about co-ops, the exciting thing about co-ops and mutuals is that it is the discussion about democracy within the economy. And that, I think, is that's the next evolutionary step. If we don't make that step, then um, the climate emergency will see, you know, other forms put into place that are less democratic um, in order for uh, survival. And I don't think that's in anyone's interest. I don't think you know, when you unpack that, that that's a place people, um, are, apart from fascists, want to go
2: It's interesting, too, that uh, there's conversation about um, things like uh, green uh, energy infrastructure uh, and moving away from fossil fuels. But using the same economic models of capitalism that are employed for fossil fuels into the green...
10: The greener we make, for instance, energy, um, the... The more we bring down the price of energy, um, so for capitalists to invest a dollar only to get a fifty cent return is not sustainable for them. It invests a dollar; it's got to get two back. If it gets two; it invests two; it's got to get three. What
2: are it you? Can't invest- are you are you saying that capitalism is anti-human survival?
10: <laughs> Absolutely, but that's where we've that's the. That's the irrational phase in history that we've reached because, because, of, well, as a, to repeat, I mean, the largest industry is, is the military. So what is that? It, it absolutely necessitates war because, because otherwise if you make missiles and munitions, as I said before, and you don't use them, well, you create an inflationary pull that would see us in a depression overnight. If you got rid of militarism,
2: because on Anzac Day with its ridiculous level of um drum uh banging and uh indoctrination of children through such uh media outlets as the Herald Sun uh into the mawkish uh devotion to war, uh I think your views are a perfect uh um Antidote.
10: Well, you know, like, I mean, for my generation, I mean, I'm, I'm 70 next year. Um, you know, my parents fought in that Second World War, the anti-fascist struggle. Um, but if you go back through a lot of the other wars that, that our young people were put in harm's way to produce, and I say produce because it's a product, um, uh, uh, they are not things we want to put out there in the minds of our young people as as glorified as as good wars as just wars, they were not. Um, they were wars about conquest, about who would run the colonies, about um, increased production by lowering the cost of labour. They were they were anti planet. They destroyed whole ecosystems. It's um, um, bad enough they happened then, uh, when you know the planet could absorb some of that damage. Um, we're simply out of that phase now. The planet can't even cope with the, the way we produce and the things we produce, let alone with world war. So it is not an option. And the, this symbolism at the moment where our young people are going to be out in the street at 6 a.m. on Saturday, you know, and we're seeing on our, on our TV screens at the moment young people with that soft glow of the candle around their head oh, and, yeah. and, and, the, and the trumpet being played with the last post. And it's a dangerous form of symbolism, I mean, I am all for saying all the warriors in all the wars, we need to bow our head. And, and if you're a humanist, say you, if you're a religionist, what well, do you pray? And if you're not, what well, do you, you know, you, you try to think as positively as you You know, like to, to sort of put this imagery out there, which, which would have us believe that um, we have to support the reasons behind the war rather than support those who were forced to fight them. Uh, and, and so that it would never happen again. They are two entirely different things here. And, and I think, you know, we, we expect that from the Conservatives, but we're getting some of it coming from the bloody Labour Party. You know, we, we've got to challenge this stuff and, and because the next war of the sort they're thinking about will be nuclear. Mm, mm, you know? And, uh, and I mean, what incentive has China got at the moment other than incentives towards militarism, towards armoring up? I mean, if you were the Chinese leadership, you'd be looking at all these missile sites aimed at you. and You'd be thinking, well, we better get our act together. So what do you get? You get the South China Seas. You get you know, building islands that can land military planes. Of
2: well, course I'll you going to get it. I'll tell you what the fuse will be. The fuse will be the neocons are, uh, are trying to crank up the discussion around it's all China's fault, so they have to pay us lots of money.
10: That's right. That's, that's right, Chinese. and China, yeah, and China's been there before, isn't it? I mean, that's what that drove that drove their revolutionary movement. You know, the early through to forty nine when when Mao won. I mean, so much of that was around the, the anti colonial struggle for for independence and sovereignty. Yeah,
2: exactly. And
10: um, and and so they're not they're not going to be just you know uh, patted on the head and pushed aside into some ditch when they're not needed anymore. They they are saying we want we want to. Build a, a global economy where we can trade and not fight wars with each other. We can. They're saying that. And whatever differences people might have about the nature of the Chinese uh, Communist Party and, 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 and all that, that cannot be denied. And the reason I say that, because it, it, the reason it's so demonstrable, is that without the Chinese economy, global capitalism would collapse. And that now, what a strange irony that is, but it is still nonetheless a fact. And, uh, you know... To, to be, to be on the one hand trading with them and admiring them about how how they can take this planned economy they've got and throw it at the private sector so it thrives, but then on the other hand whipping up the uh, you know the war language and the and, and the trumpet playing. Um, I mean, it's such a dangerous space that they're creating, and they're, they're unfortunately using COVID as another means to do it.
2: Well, as um, Humphrey McQueen said. Uh, capitalism will survive any crisis as long as they make us pay
10: true and and you know uh, i think you take that that logic and reverse it that, that's where our our strength lies that's if there is to be a future as they say it's along those lines that if we set up the appropriate structures we've got we've got the capital the workers capital is there it, it, needs, it needs the economic structures and the, and the boots on the ground in real jobs, real climate jobs, to attract that socialised capital. I mean, we still have our socialised capital called private capital. Our super, fourth largest one in the world. I mean, 75% of all the capital invested in our country is our super. That's a, that's a post-capitalist world.
2: So what you're saying is we should be able to make demand
10: we should and we must be able to have a democratic say and control over how that capital is used. And it ought to be the ones to determine the corporations that come to this country and the the conditions under which they operate. And the first condition must be they operate in the interests first and foremost of the citizens and not the shareholders. Now, neoliberalism will not allow that. But in the social sector, that's precisely the basis from which we would work. We wouldn't, you know. So if we can establish democratic um, control over that capital, we can we can understand it for what it actually is. It's socialised capital. It's not private capital. You know, when Turnbull went to America and he and, and he met with the American governors, and he explained to them what wonderful things we do, we in a verticals. You know, we do back home with our with our private capital with public private partnerships. Uh, using our superannuation, you see. So defining our super as private. Now, unfortunately, the way it's used is being determined largely by the private sector, and we and we have to change that. Um, information technology is another thing. Look at how a productive forces develop through history towards a situation where we can make a decision within seconds uh, uh, as as to as to how an entire industry functions. Now that technology is just crying out for something like a social sector that can um, respond to need. Um, and at the moment, it's being used for, what, Facebook and, and Zoom? And yes, all right, that's good. But but what are the meetings we're holding about? It's capitalist organisations holding meetings using that technology, which is fundamentally a social technology. It's, it's a technology that can build community and provide the means for community to function. So, again, a strong social sector of the economy owned and controlled by the people democratically that can respond to real need. Uh, that's what we need. Then IT can take on another form. Socialised capital can take on another form and we'll build the new world within the shell of the old.
7: This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR 855 AM Melbourne, Australia.
5: Step 3 is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively,
7: there just might be
10: something we can do and everything can change.
6: Hi, this is Fiona. I'm back again with another dispatch from East Gippsland. This time we're hearing from two East Gippslanders who have responded to the fires through writing poetry. Um, They're both pretty different styles of poetry, but um, we have them both. To start with, we've got Josh Willoughby, who um, I interviewed earlier in the week and he's been writing haikus, which is a Japanese type of poetry that has a number of syllables, um, and it's only three lines long, so they're quite short. He talks about how um, he hasn't written for years, but the writing process has been almost involuntary for him um, in response to the horrible trauma of the fires. Um, So now he's calling them healing haikus. Um, So let's hear from him now. Okay, so I'm here um, in the Zoom virtual space um, with Josh Willoughby from Goongra. How are you going, Josh?
11: I'm good, Fiona. How are you?
6: I'm not too bad. Um, So tell me, Josh, um, whereabouts are you up in Goongra? Can you explain that to people that might not know exactly where it is?
11: Yep. So uh, Goongra is um, around about an hour's drive from Orbost, north of Orbost. It's also roughly about the same south of Delegate in New South Wales. Um, I don't know, the region has been known once upon a time as the North Riding. I actually really like that name for the area, but now we have some other name that doesn't do it for me, like Mountain Rivers District or something benign like that. But yeah, anyway, it's um, quite a small, isolated little valley surrounded by wilderness and you know, it was, a uh, pretty heavily impacted by the bushfires this year.
6: Yeah. So how long have you lived up there for?
11: Uh, I've lived in Goongra, um, full time since, uh, uh, I think it was late 2005, um, went away for about 10 months, once in that period. But yeah, so, you know, um, 15 odd years, um, been coming to the area since the late nineties and um yeah it's a beautiful place love it
6: yeah it's a great place and so as everybody would know the catastrophic bushfires that hit um on the 30th of december in 2019 so about four months ago now um really ripped through goongra um, and the bush that surrounds it and so I guess in response to that um you've been writing some poetry is that right
11: Yep um I was away when the fires hit you know doing sort of christmas and new year's family type stuff and yep as we all know the fires hit over right over new year's and um so I came back down um sort of within about a week of it um you know initially hitting just when I thought you know I didn't want to race down into you know if it was just going to flare up again so once I felt like it was more or less safe enough came down and it was interesting um, just in that it sort of took me several days or a week or something to really see stuff I, I guess I came in and I must have just had the blinkers on without even realizing and was kind of like oh it's not so bad and then as each day went by i just actually more and more got through the filter and um just realized how how full on it was you know just how much the you know the beautiful broad river had just been like devastated and you know how few animals like birds insects all all the animals how few there were around and just seeing really injured and and actually dead animals all Mm. all over the place, you know? And it was, um, yeah, really, um, for me, that was, you know, like the biggest part of the impact on myself personally was just, um, seeing that really broad scale devastation of the bush, both like, you know, the flora and the fauna and all of that. Yeah.
6: Yeah. And and luckily your house didn't burn, but, um, the whole surrounding area has been pretty and and you had animals there too. Did you, or were you animals out by that stage? Uh,
11: Had some horses here, had four horses here. And it took me about close to a week of um, after getting back to track them down because all the fencing was burnt and they obviously had a fair bit of a traumatic time. I can only really imagine. So they were just kind of, you know they were on the run a bit or wherever and um yeah finally managed to track them down um yeah the house didn't burn down which was a very bizarre thing like our wooden deck on a weatherboard house actually has a huge hole burnt in it and the house itself didn't burn and um but you know lost like a couple of cars and a caravan and water tanks and lots of sort of other infrastructure but um, strangely um, the house still stands yeah.
6: So tell us about your poems tell us what you've been how you've been um, kind of trying to cope with this horrible thing that's happened um, through writing stuff down would you be able to tell us what you've got for us to hear?
11: Well um, I guess uh, one night I was just at a a friend's house here in Goongra and he uh, wasn't there and um, and actually, I don't think I'm going to be able to read this poem out. It's one of the ones I didn't write down on my sheet. But there was just this interesting, like two lights coming in and it was creating this really interesting shadow thing. And I was just kind of sitting there and my mind was ticking over. And, and I just felt inspired to write this poem about different perspectives and um, where the shadows intersect, you get clear, clear definition. And so anyway, I wrote this poem about that and um, and then that just made me remember that I actually used to really like writing poetry and um, so I started writing uh, just some poems mainly to do with the fire. I decided to work within the structure of a haiku because it, within that structure, there's a lot of freedom that you can get, you know, you you don't just sort of ramble on, you can just put it in that little box and get your stuff out within the constraints of, of that. So, you know, um, yeah, I I might just start with, I, I wrote two poems together and, um, it was after I was driving along the Bonang and it was sort of pretty early on and, um, met a couple of people on the road, some friends and, and we just got to talking about, Um, how we'd all been feeling really emotional and um, you know oh gosh at that stage like you know I was kind of like crying every day and this one person I was talking to who you know I was this like uh, you know not someone you would think think of doing this but they just said exactly the same thing to me and how they were all messed up about all the dead animals and you know all that sort of stuff so <laughs> all right um so i'm just gonna i'm just gonna read two poems out now okay, okay. um That's right yep smoke thick clouded dreams more awake than the stark day once the fire had burnt so there you go just digest that one for a minute <laughs> But yeah, I I like it. All right. And then um, this one is more directly about what I was just talking about. It was written as a kind of a direct response to that meeting with the people on the road. Tears can fall daily like burnt leaves blown to the ground with sepia breeze. Wow. That's
6: beautiful.
11: Yeah. Well, I mean, even in that, Really devastated fireground, you know. There's like, um, there is beauty to it. There's no two ways about it, and you know, and it gets to that point, it, like it, everything is in sort of sepia tones, and mm. um, yeah. Anyway, especially at that
6: stage when there were still heaps of smoke in the air, and it was really kind of yeah, sepia.
11: Yeah, absolutely. Yep, yeah. it's pretty pretty weird. So yeah, that at that point because um, the change is quite profound in that uh, um, your the distance you can see now in Gungara is mm. incredibly uh, it, you can see you can see much further because everything's just been burnt and um, its it really has changed the space. And so then right then we're on the side of the road and we're near to the broad river. And, um, you know, previously you wouldn't have actually been able to see the broddy from where we were, but because all, everything had changed so much, you could actually see it. And, you know, I have some photos of really sort of tortured ghoulish trees that had just been burnt to like shells and, um, And, you know, like that river is just like so beautiful. And so anyway, I want to read this other poem that I wrote um, like way prior to the, the fires, but I'd just been swimming in the river. And if you've ever been in that river or really clear, pristine water, the feeling of it on your body is just like this incredible thing. So I really wanted to try and capture that. So I guess I want to just read this one as a bit of a counter to that, you know, how it is now. This is more about how it sort of was. Um, So anyway, this one's about the broad rib. The flow surrounds me, touch the water, caress me, viscous, fluid, clear. So there you go. That's That's the broady.
6: Beautiful. I miss the broad rib.
11: Yeah, you know that feeling when you're just like nude in the water and the, it's just the way it flows around you and mm. like, oh, my God, it's like.
6: And it's always so cold.
11: Yeah, <laughs> yeah it is. Yeah.
6: yeah. So okay. how, do you, how do you feel? Do you, so you've mentioned that, I guess, the, this event that's happened in all of our lives, but particularly, you know, in your own personal life, um has inspired you to get back into writing poetry um do you think like is it is it helping do you think like having an outlet for your kind of feelings about this being able to write stuff down or like is is it is it therapy in a way
11: oh uh, yeah like inspired probably isn't really the right word it's it's kind of like almost necessary so mm. um uh One morning when I was up north, I like um, I just woke up really early, and I just I just awoke with like really full on sadness. Right, I just felt fucking sad, and I had my mobile phone there, and I just like on the the memo on the phone, I like I wrote about like five haikus and then i just like passed out i just come you know i was just like spent you know
7: mm. and
11: then when i woke up uh i hadn't actually saved them and my battery had ran out oh. <laughs> so i I lost them all and i was just like oh man but like that's just you know it's not to say that i've been inspired and i think i might have said that to you previously it, it actually it's sort of not true it, they just, it needs to come out and it is a lot like, um, like therapy or, yeah. or whatever, you know, like it's, um, so a it's coping
6: involuntary.
11: Yeah. 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 Yeah.
6: Well, they're yeah. really beautiful poems, Josh, and thanks so much for sharing them with us and with everybody listening. It's, um, yeah, it's really sad, but I'm glad that something beautiful is coming out of it.
11: Oh, it's okay. I've got a couple more. Can oh, I do read you those as well? Or? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, ahead. yeah. All right, I got, I've got three more. Okay, okay. one is unrelated to the fires, but I wrote it in this period, so I'm yeah. going to read that one now. Okay. Metaphoric dreams, metadata memes, and reams of scenes passing by. There you go. And then, um, okay, this one. These two are a bit more topical or whatever so um trying to be cool when i know i'm burning up consumed by moving fire wow all right they're all just short and fucking to the point i guess all right so now this one is my um uh you know fire coronavirus crossover poem god so here we go (laughs) (laughs) uh my, my, no, sorry. It's going to be the right amount of syllables. My, my Corona virus came through the firewall. Viral, stop, go, what? All right, that's it. Perfect. <laughs> yeah.
6: So are you planning cool, on, thanks, Fiona. Are you planning on putting these online at all? Can Is, is it possible for people to have a read of them anywhere?
11: Uh, I've sort of been thinking about that. And, um, I, I sort of haven't got to that point yet. I was actually toying with the idea of maybe starting like a Facebook group or something along the lines of healing haikus and just seeing if other people wanted to use that format to, you know, just get some of their crap out or whatever. Um, so, uh, no, not right now, but yes, maybe later.
6: That sounds really great. Healing haikus, I like that. That's cool. Thank you.
11: Thanks, Fiona.
6: Okay, so that was Josh. Um, and now with the second poet that we're going to hear from is called Sue Fraser, the Aid poet. So she's been writing about life in East Gippsland since she won a State Award for Poetry at the age of nine. Um, her husband has been a BlazeAid camp manager at many bushfires throughout Gippsland um, and so she's been writing about those stories and the stories of community resilience. So BlazeAid is an organisation that started from um, one person who began the, began the organisation to um, help people after they've been through a fire situation and they gather huge numbers of volunteers who support people Um, through the destruction of their properties and livelihoods. So they um, build fences, they protect the livestock, they organise the feed and they do a really great job of checking in on the wellbeing of the farmers and the families. So the poem that you're about to hear was recorded by Catherine van Wilgenberg, who was a float artist in residence in Lake Tyres um, in collaboration with a photographer called Nilmini de Silva just after the East Gippsland bushfires. So Catherine's been interviewing East Gippsland artists about the impact of the fires um, on them and on their businesses. And this is one of the recordings that she made at the time. So we'll hear from Sue Fraser now.
8: So back in 2018, I wrote a poem about Blazo because that's what I do, I write, especially poetry. Bush poetry, people call it. I'm not sure I like the word bush. It's rhyming poetry, it's story poetry. This was in response to one of the... Phil was working on one of the camps, and I put it on their site, and people loved it. I called it Hooray for Blaze Aid. In fire or flood or wind or drought, there is a group that care, that rush to help the farmers out, to use the skills they share. They volunteer as Blaze Aiders, none seeking thanks or pay, put on the shirts they're proud to wear and travel far away. Many are grey nomads who can travel anywhere, Their house on wheels is fully stocked, they've energy to spare. Others take a few weeks off to volunteer their time. Instead of barley holidays, they work on fencing lines. Hard yakker and long days of work, camaraderie and fun. Choyacking townies' softened hands helps get the day's work done. Fences slowly rise from ash and farmers take some hope that from the devastation they can find the strength to cope. The ladies who prepare the food make tasty meals with care, wash dishes till their hands are raw, go fencing if they dare. Blaze was started by one man who saw a pressing need as bushfire ravaged farmers. Cried, he rallied men to lead. With volunteering army massed, donations pouring in, he organised and set up camp to help the work begin. A massive task he undertook, his wife loyal by his side, but soon lieutenants eased his load as more joined for the ride. Year after year, Blazade persists and draws more people in. Donations bought the tools required to let the work begin. Disaster strikes in every state and urgent needs are met as trailers packed with tools are towed to where a camp is set. Blazade embodies Aussie pride of helping out a mate, ensuring farmers get relief before it is too late.
6: Okay, so that's it for this week. Something a little bit different. Um, if you want to find out more, Catherine and Nilmi are working on an exhibition at the moment called Swimming Upstream, where they'll be presenting their podcast that they've been recording and also photo portraits of East Gippslanders who have been sharing their stories about what it takes to live sustainably, um, working into a new type of economy for East Gippsland post um, fires. And if Anyone's keen to contact Josh? and maybe write some of their own healing haikus, you can email him. Um, his email is chucksize at gmail.com. That's C-H-U-C-K-S-I-Z-E at gmail.com. Okay, that's it from me. Hope you enjoyed um, these stories from East Gippsland and speak to you again soon.
4: A week solidarity, Bricky Team listener, when we celebrate the great success story which made True Blue Wazzy what it is today. The great success story which honed our values, invading a country across the other side of the world on the orders of our then missed mother country before we switched our groveling servitude to our new master... US of the UN of the US of the world, under whose directions we've invaded lots and lots of other countries across the world. The great success of invading the wrong beach and getting wiped out, which probably does explain what we are today and our true blue Aussie values, whatever that means. And haven't we enjoyed the daily photos promoting the big day of dear little children proudly covered by an oversized slouched hat and a chest full of trained killer medals? Uh, yes, we are senior train killer Captain Richard Shoot the Kill. Uh, I see you get upset when countries we don't like parade dear little children in train killer uniforms. Uh, yes, th- these authoritarian hate, you know, like liberty, freedom and like democracy regimes, constantly brainwash dear little children, you know, like into their warmongering. And dear little True Blue Aussie children in military gear, this is an important part of their, like, you know, education. Oh, on warmongering, notice we've had to install a rocket defence system at a True Blue Aussie train killer camp in Iraq. Uh, what are we doing there? We're, like, you know, like, liberating the, you know, like, people. But didn't we achieve that? George W. Bash the Worker said we achieved that back in 2003. Yes, yes, this is like just a, a mopping up, you know, like operation. Well, thank you, Captain Shoot the Kill. Happy Train Killer Day. Pleasure, like. In another war engulfing us, the engulf war, big supremo Scuttled Ben Morelson supported the caring employers' balanced thinking that we must get the economy running urgently, lift the lockdown, which is proving a health threat to the economy, announcing that when the greatest little economic order of them all can take over the economy again, the government must pursue a quote aggressive pro-business investment strategy which means we shouldn't notice any difference. Industrial relations reform would be essential. That's sadly lacking and desperately needed flexibility. Presumably retaining the concessions made by evil unions, a, a good start would be to continue to allow annual holidays, for instance. Don't take them away. But ease the crippling burden on caring employers by converting holiday leave to a very sensible leave without pay. After all, workers must share the pain of the recovery, and we'd agree, listener, it's odds-on we will. Well, not perhaps share, but bear and tax reform to ensure the beneficiaries of public personal deaths aren't asked to refill the public coffers, and deregulation, ensuring silly environmental concerns don't come between great corporations and their pots of gold, including fast-tracking infrastructure projects as determined, we assume, by the public planning authorities in the great corporate boardrooms. Okay, okay, I can hear your cynicism. Of course, Scuttlebem would advocate aggressive pro-caring business class policies. After all, he leads a caring business class government. Well, stick your cynicism. Cynicism misplaced. When Scuttlebem's aggressive pro-business investment strategy is supported by no less independent observer and expert as but totally new preserved capitalism bank governor Philip prophets too low, who called for, you guessed it, tax reform, industrial reform, deregulation, fast tracked infrastructure. He too knows we need flexibility in industrial relations. A fairer tax system achieved by lowering taxes on incomes and profits and increasing the goods and services tax, which is just so much fairer because we all pay at the same rate, making the poverty-stricken feel they are being treated as equals cut green tape, holding up great investment opportunities when everyone knows they'll be approved in the end anyway, so why suffer delays through the charades that are environmental hearings, including investment in infrastructure which can be fast-tracked if silly environmental objections are banned. And Profits Too Low said we could ensure profits are not too low, good for all of us, by Team Australia-type cooperation. Beautiful phrase, beautiful phrase. Urging evil unions to join governments and caring employers in putting the humpty-dumpty of capitalism back together again, meaning workers can get back to being exploited, or sorry, sorry, uh, meaningful work as soon as possible. Well, less a few of the crippling wages and conditions they enjoyed before this economic reality check, which has shown just how useful capitalism is in a crisis. For instance, getting this off to a promising start, the government has slashed the time for consultation when caring employers want to change wages and conditions from seven days to one day, and yet the bloody uncooperative unions reckon it's but an excuse to slash wages and conditions. As if. Don't they realise we're at war, that we're all in this together? And as the Socialist Party urges Senate crossbenches to rescind this ruling ex-train-killer Jackie Lumpen and have a happy train-killing glorification day, Jackie, declared, I won't be dictated to by unions. I'll be dictated to by caring employers. Having been told we're at war, Jackie was last seen squatting outside her office camouflaged as a shrub. And naturally, with the budget sinking, it's logical the taxes, other than just the we're all equal GST, will have to increase. But... But hang on, hang on. Big economic guru Josh Friedem Icebergs, backed up by key and very wise Business Profits Council, says they will slash taxes on the rich to help the budget bottom line. So you increase your take by reducing your take. An explanatory note wouldn't have hurt. Responsible people across the US of the UN of the US of the world, rust belts, took to the streets to demand the COVID-19 restrictions be lifted. Restrictions they were breaking by being on the street protesting that the restrictions be lifted because... God has given U.S. ob citizens the right to be exploited, to support their families, to come and go when and where they wish, and the far more important right for the great corporate sector to operate without restriction. Freedom of capital, the greatest God-given freedom of all. And as this guy from some freedom mob in Idaho pointed out, the health advisors around government are having far too much say when the agenda must be led by economic experts like... Say, this guy from some freedom mob in Idaho. After all, he revealed his powers of responsible thinking. Lots of people will die even with the restrictions. Therefore, why not let them die without the restrictions? So add the freedom to catch coronavirus to their God-given freedoms. And we know these people are a- Responsible because their commander in chief, big supremo Donald Trump or the Poor, said they are responsible people who just happened to hit the streets, just as Donald is urging the US of must go back to business as usual because the health of the economy is suffering. And the presence of Donald's advisers and henchmen or women leading the protests is purely coincidental. And Donald had nothing to do with these spontaneous, responsible protests other than the presence of his advisers and henchmen or women, and calling for the liberation of democratic governed states which think it might be just a touch risky to go back to business as usual. Worst governors ever, ever back here notice while others fail retail sales have been on a roll a toilet roll no seriously on this Virgin on Disaster airline and I think we have to view the Virgin bit with great scepticism although the government did reject a generous offer to screw the taxpayers a rejection criticised by the Virgin on Disaster founder Richard It's My Brand Son, speaking from one of his mansions or private islands across the globe possibly his Lake Como estate I Able to believe a government hand him a few billion to tide him over, or as his true blue Aussie Supremo's Paul Scorer Fortune said it for all of us, you can understand Richard is hurting. He expressed his sympathy. Poor, hurting Richard. Hang the thousands of workers who've just lost their jobs. They would know hurt, compared to how Richard knows hurt, must feel. Especially given Troubler was he is just one government refusing Virginon's generous proposal to screw the taxpayers. Virgin on Disaster Atlantic, Virginon Disaster Europe, it's hurt after hurt after hurt. But I do him a disservice, he's Sir Richard, knighted by Her Most Gracious Majesty, for making heaps and heaps and heaps of money. Clearly the heaps and heaps and heaps of money the public coppers have already emptied into the airline's coppers wasn't nearly enough for Sir Richard. Speaking of Lake Como, that's the nearest thing Richard will ever get to Como. And why shouldn't we support an industry that played such a key role in carrying the coronavirus all over the world? The That's the Spirit Award of the Week, Well, we've all got that train killer spirit today, but that's the spirit award to transfer the wealth urban for getting into the spirit of the community battle by making a contribution to the hip pocket of motorists, deciding this is the perfect time to increase the tolls on its private roads. This, it explained, was a contribution to public health. One-person cars are the safest way to ensure social distancing, spokesperson Chuck Bloated explained. Like socially distancing your people from their reduced incomes. Transfer the Wealth Urban, your that's the Spirit Award is on its way. Uh, oh, finally, an exception. One-person cars are not the safest way if we're planning to protest at the treatment of no proper papers queue-jumping illegal boat people. Very, very unsafe. Good morning. Gajagurajan. Gonderman.
9: This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yauru country. And it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. Where I belong.
2: You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR. We finish off today with a look at what activism looks like during coronavirus. We've had a conversation with people about uh, car rallies and uh, things of that nature. Uh, Coronavirus has kept people at home and enforced social distancing, but it hasn't stopped the destruction environment or the pushback from citizens. On April the 8th, to mark the unbelievable reopening of logging in the Tarkine old-growth forest areas, once believed saved from destruction, a mass Zoom rally of over 2,000 people tuned in to kick-start the next leg of the campaign to save the Tarkine. After a welcome from First Nations custodian Heather Skullthorpe, we hear from Bob Brown and then others and thanks to Vivian Langford from 3CR's Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show for the excerpts. You can catch BZE Community Show on 3CR on Mondays at 5.30pm.
3: this was and remains Tasmanian Aboriginal land known to all of us. Pakana Tunapri luralapina, Muta purinina kaparanina, pakana krakapaka. Our people knew the giant freshwater crayfish, the birds, the Tasmanian devil, the Tasmanian tiger. Today, loggers and others devastate our lands. So, welcome to all of you who want to join with us in making a sustainable future on our lands for
7: all people.
0: Look, we are in a world where, uh, in- 2014, the New York Forest Agreement was signed to end all logging of and destruction of forests by 2030. Since then, the rate of uh, destruction has increased. However, in Africa, it's doubled. And here in Tasmania, which has uh, one of the most intact forest domains, despite all, left on earth, the government is hell-bent on increasing the rate of destruction. And today, April the 8th, marks the day uh, which under government legislation of Premier government now, uh, 356,000 hectares, that's 356,000 soccer fields of high conservation value forests. They're full of wildlife. Great variety of woodlands, rainforest. The tallest flowering forest on earth is being opened up. And as uh, the minister for forest down here says, welcoming loggers to go in there. They're just waiting for applications. Now our job is to stop that. There is no need for this. The Tasmanian Wedgetail Eagle, which three metres across, up to three metres across, is larger than its mainland cousin. You see top right there the swift Barrow. Uh In the middle on the right, the white gospel, it says grey there, but they're white in Tasmania, they're grey on the mainland, the only completely white raptor on the planet. And so much more, being destroyed before our very eyes by criminal legislation. It's up to us to stand against that. We need much more from everybody. We need everybody to come and see Tasmania's forests when you can. That's the first thing. Because to see them is to want to save them. It's now my great pleasure to introduce Virginia Young. Virginia contributes through the Australian Forest Conservation Society to global research on forests. She's been a great campaigner with the Wilderness Society and others for decades now. Welcome, Virginia.
7: The image, well, what I learned about Tasmania was not only are the forests grand and beautiful and majestic unlike any others on Earth, but they really do protect extraordinary diversity and ancient lineages of, of biodiversity and evolutionary history. They're quite remarkable. And the, that diversity extends to these strange little jumps in genetics that occur across the state. They're called parapatric boundaries. I'd never heard of them. But it means that the genetics of the Regnans or or um, the devils in the West are quite different to the genetics of the same species in the East. And that genetic diversity has never really been captured or properly protected in in Tasmania. It also made really clear to me that the underlying biodiversity in the tall wet forests on the boundary of the World Heritage Area is in the, uh, is this globally significant fungal and invertebrate diversity that underpins their productivity. It makes them such like big giant trees. And on the east coast, it's in the eucalypts and the birds and quite a different kind of diversity. So... When people say Tasmania is a biological wonderland, it's absolutely true. So when you look at you know where we are eight years on, and the thought that these forests are going to be opened up for logging is appalling, and it's particularly appalling given that the world has moved on again in those eight years. What do we know now? We know that climate change is far more extreme than we anticipated. That uh, the vulnerability of our forests to severe drought and extreme fire is far greater than we ever expected at this point in our history. And we know with absolute certainty that the best thing that we can do is to protect our older forests and to restore those forests that have been logged, to improve their integrity. That's the best thing we can do for climate to help fight climate change and to protect biodiversity. The other thing we've learnt in this time is we face two global crises, not just a climate crisis but a biodiversity crisis, and that the two crises are linked. And in fact, globally now, which is where I work, I kind of work in the international policy space on these issues, we know now we cannot solve the climate crisis without solving the biodiversity crisis. And when you tackle climate change in in land and forests, you must do so in ways. And you can only do so if you're protecting and restoring biodiversity. Nature-based solutions are the new buzzword internationally. And it it amazes me that Tasmania and and no government in Australia really has looked at that as a pathway for global leadership and something they could be proud of. Tasmania could protect what are some of the most carbon-dense forests on Earth and provide a global biodiversity legacy for all Australians and the rest of them, And that's our challenge, is to protect and restore the natural world. Uh, so that's all I've really got to say, but I will like to welcome Peg Partis. Peg, as you all know, was leader of the Greens. She founded um, and was the former head of Markets for Change. And now she leads a global network fighting the most absurd new threat to forests globally, which is to burn them. For power in the name of renewable and carbon neutral energy. Peg leads that fight very ably, and thank God we've got her. Thank you, Peg.
8: I am not in love, but I'm open to persuasion.
9: When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. Thank you. We elect governments, all of us, and members of parliament, and call on them to ensure forest protection and to build an economy not based in environmental destruction. Today, the Tasmanian government is letting us down. Today marks the start. We now enter a period in which the loggers can put forward a formal request to log inside these places previously designated by law to become permanent secure conservation reserves. Would you buy wood products sourced from such a destruction? I assume not. If you knew, if you remembered to ask when you go shopping for furniture or wood for building and odd jobs around the home, or paper, the role of the consumer has become very important in achieving environmental change. And there are advantages for companies that set high environmental and social standards. You might remember... When the forest negotiations in Tasmania had agreed a moratorium on logging these very forests so a a big agreement could be thrashed out, one company refused, pleading that they required uh, supply of logs from the high conservation value areas. That was Ta'an. This was so unreasonable that we went to their customer companies in Japan and explained the situation. To cut a long story short, those customers were appalled to discover just where their plywood components were coming from. They saw the sort of pictures you've seen today. And especially appalled because they have been told they were coming from plantations. Contracts were canceled. Tyran rapidly fell into line. Beware the weasel words of government. It's not yet formalized. Couldn't be until the 8th of April came around and it will have hoops to go through. But the intention is irrefutable. We have to make a lot of noise. Make sure the world knows that we will fight again to secure these forests, that we care deeply, and that in these times, to log these places is just criminal. Companies in the supply chain need to understand that this could blow back on them think about what you buy. Start asking exactly where the wood you buy comes from. Be insistent. Don't accept ignorance as an answer. Today, the Wilderness Society has revealed a letter from Bunnings who say, and I'll quote, Bunnings will neither source nor sell wood from the future potential production forest in Tasmania. Bunnings has also sought confirmation from its Tasmanian suppliers that they will not source from the previously protected areas. Well, good on Bunnings. This is an important move. We now need to step up the pressure on all the retailers, not limited to hardware stores, but furniture shops and so on, and the timber companies themselves. So speak up, take action, make it personal, and we can save these forests again. So now that's it from me, and my great pleasure is to introduce Christine Milne. Christine Milne AO is a long term environmental activist, former leader of the Australian Greens, former vice president of the IUCN, and currently Global Greens ambassador. Take it away, Christine.
1: Thanks very much, Peg, and hi, everyone. It's terrific to be in contact, although uh, somewhat distanced. Uh, to talk about Tasmania's forests. As you know, I've been a forest activist for 30 years, as many of you have, and I've taken a particular interest in the rorts and corruption that I've seen over that time as governments support native forest logging. In the Tasmanian case, there has been one certainty over that period Regardless of whether a Liberal or Labor government has been in power in Tasmania or nationally, that certainty is the squandering of taxpayer dollars propping up native forest logging, even when reducing or getting out of native forest logging was supposed to be the aim. Close to a billion dollars have been thrown at the industry over that time because it's a closely networked old boys club. They're part of a revolving door. It goes around and around from company directors to peak body spokespeople, as Peg has just suggested, to CFMU, to political party candidates, ministerial advisors and back again. And whenever there's a crisis, they negotiate with one another and they determine government to industry and back again all the terms of reference for the payouts, and they drip feed. 10 million here, 100 million there for training programs, exit packages, restructuring, new job initiatives, and so on. And we all know where it leads. Not much progress in terms of conservation. We all know, for example, that Evan Rowley, the former head of Forestry Tasmania, negotiated the contract with TAR-Ann and then left Forestry Tasmania and went to ta as its CEO. So exit to the logging contractors doesn't mean exit. It just means take the money, restructure, go to the mainland, log there for a few years and come back. And one of the terms of the taking the exit packages in 2011 was that in 10 years you can come back again. So all of these people are sitting there now ready to gear up to go back into the logging industry. Now, I uh, sought police intervention to actually have some of these um, uh, rorts and people rorting the system charged. Eventually, in 2015, a few were charged, but largely they got away with it, mainly because the Commonwealth was so slack in the guidelines they wrote that the loopholes were so large that they literally could drive their log trucks straight through them. So what we have to do is make it perfectly clear to all political parties that in the species extinction and climate and biodiversity crisis, we won't tolerate even $1 of our taxes subsidising native forest logging. Secondly, we have to make it clear to the government at both federal and state level that we will not be open to compensating or paying exit packages again to those in the industry who go back into or expand their native forest logging operations. There needs to be an audit right now of all the businesses and contractors who are engaged in the forest industry in Tasmania so the record is clear. The United Nations decade of ecosystem restoration begins next year. We should be putting money into restoring degraded forests rather than uh, continuing to destroy them. And finally, Brand Tasmania, where are you? Silent as usual. And this time it's very clear again that this initiative by the logging industry to go back into the forest will undermine the Tasmanian brand, whereas they could actually brand Tasmania come out and call for the permanent protection of uh, our forests, an end to native forest logging and the, the, the promotion of Tasmania as a solution to the climate crisis. On that note, I want to hand over to someone who has been a fantastic activist and is an activist right now in Tasmania's forests, protecting all that we hold dear. Her name is Dr Lisa Searle. Uh, apart from spending time in the Congo each year as part of Medicine Sans Frontieres, she's a person of great courage, who's out in the bush cooking for the camps, putting her body on the line. So over to you, Lisa. Unfortunately, despite the the
3: pandemic that's going on at the moment, clear felling of Tasmania's native forests has not slowed down. And I have been out there on the front line. I've been out there in the forests up until uh, about a week ago when um, we we were forced to um, rethink our strategies. Despite the pandemic, the Sustainable Timber Tasmania are continuing business as usual. Um, they are still were before. They haven't modified their operations at all. And it's quite frustrating that we are being forced to adapt and we will adapt, we will continue the fight and we will continue doing whatever we can as long as they are clear filling native forests we will be there, yeah, highlighting what they're doing and trying to get them out of those forests because there is absolutely no reason why they should be doing that. But we need to end native forest logging. Now, yesterday, the need couldn't be more urgent and we're losing forests at an unprecedented rate all around the globe. Tasmania's forests are incredibly significant, amazing places for so many reasons and we need to protect them. I would like to give you guys a little bit of an update of what's been happening in the campaign on the front line over the last few months. So I've spent a lot of time on the front line. Um, over the last few months. And since October, we've actually had 32 arrests, three of which have been myself. We have continued to maintain our sumac blockade. Um, They won't be going to log that particular forest this year. So we've been blockading the sumac forest now for two years and we have had hundreds of people through that camp, hundreds of people that have spent time at that camp and experienced that rainforest. We had some machines move into Kew Road which is a, an incredible area of really ancient rainforest. And machines moved in, we were there to stop them. And in the end, they left having taken less than half of what they wanted to take, which was good. And we watched the machines move out of there um, and we moved from there to the Boko region of the southern Tarkine where there was um, an active logging coop there. They took less than 5% of what they wanted to. And once we got in there and started blockading, uh, we were only in there for about five days and then they moved the machines out. So that was amazing. We've also stopped, stopped work for three days in the Whitworth Hills region, it's, um, the site of Tasmania's largest scale clear felling of native forest. Um, and that is ongoing and we are still fighting. That battle. There's still machines in there working in three active groups at the moment. Um, and we've been providing support in the last couple of weeks to community groups in Aldina and in La Cunha, also in the northwest, and these community group groups are fighting to protect um, remnant native forests in their areas, and we've been able to lend support to them, which has been fantastic. We've also done a blockade of Tatten Smithton veneer mill and occupied Sustainable Timber Tasmania head office in Hobart. Yes, it's been an amazing summer. It's been the biggest direct action summer that we've had for years, and it's been really exciting to be. A part of that and to be um, really at the forefront of that and it's such a roller coaster you you lose places you win places I've seen so many places lost and um, I think one of my favorite things is seeing people experience these forests and experience these places for the first time and and then the realisation
2: that they can actually do something about it. That's it for Solidarity Breakfast this week. Next Tuesday is the International Memorial Day for Workers Lost at Work. There will be an online event through Victoria Trades Hall, and Friday is May 1st, International Workers' Day, with special programming on 3CR, your community radio station. I'll be back next week. Catch you then.